Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Human Factors Cast. This is episode 223. We're recording this live on October 21st, 2021. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today by two wonderful people. We got Barry Kirby. Hey, how you doing? Good, Barry. Thank you for joining us. And also on the line, we also have Frank Laxon. Hey, glad to be here. Thanks for being on the show, Frank. You haven't been on since, uh, I think I was looking at it, it was, what, episode 197 or something? You were right before our 200 extravaganza. Yeah, I'm in that epoch, the pre-200 epoch. <laughs> pre-200. <laughs> uh, we got a great show for you all tonight. We're going to be talking about artificial intelligence in the classroom, and later we're going to answer some questions from the community uh, about some really great things like, what does it mean to be human factors? I think that's one of them. Anyway, <laughs> I didn't write them in the show notes. There you go. That's what I get for overlooking. Anyway, what exactly are human factor skills? How do you conduct and analyze research in relation to a product feature? And what is some advice on making designs that are easier for developers to follow or but follow? But first, got some programming notes. Uh, there's not going to be a show next week. Um, stick around, though. They're always pleasant surprises, maybe. Anyway, we'll be back on the 4th of November for sure. Maybe a pleasant surprise next week. Who knows? Anyway, we're not going to be here live doing this. Um, we are now streaming on LinkedIn. So if you're uh, for the first time on through our channel tonight. So if you're watching on LinkedIn, thank you. Welcome all new LinkedIn viewers. Uh, we also have Human Factors Minute available for everyone outside of Patreon for, I guess, the first time a couple weeks ago. Now it's been out there. Anyway, it's. 86 episodes available to you and we'll talk about patreon a little bit later and of course we have some conference coverage coming up so stay tuned for that but right now it's time that we get into human factors news that's right this is where we talk about everything related to the field of human factors it's fair game for us to talk about barry what do we have up this week so this week, we're looking at new research showing that learning is more effective when active. So the COVID-19 pandemic necessitated a really quick diversion into remote learning styles with lots of schools, colleges and universities having to deliver remote learning online and suddenly very keen to adapt and exploit new technologies. So students faced negative psychological effects in isolation, restlessness and inattention brought on by quarantine and remote learning. Therefore, the interest in new teaching technologies and methods has been very popular. So the faculty from Carnegie Mellon University's Human Computer Interaction Institute, through their research, concluded that engaging students through interactive activities, discussions, feedback, and AI-enhanced technologies resulted in improved academic performance compared to traditional lectures, lessons, or readings. So the research also found that active learning methods use not only hands-on, minds-on approaches, but also hearts-on approaches. Um, providing increased emotional and social support. Specifically, the research found that incorporating an AI-based virtual helper to question students, encourage them to think critically, and engage them in discussions, increased learning in hands-on activities, whilst also supporting teachers. Research was performed by controlled experiments to see how much children learn whilst interacting with a mixed reality learning platform where children perform and interpret real-world experiments with personalized interactive feedback with the artificial intelligence turned on and off. When, the, when it was turned off, 
the students learned far less. So the pandemic made it quite clear that traditional approaches to education may not be the best way to learn, but the questions have persisted around what active learning is, how best to use it, and how to excite students. So Frank, what are your thoughts on that? Well, my initial thought is is a little bit a little bit of irony. Uh, if you remember some of our, uh, a lot of studies have shown on different technologies, especially smartphones have caused people to become more isolated. So you saw a lot of that in the uh, news articles and other kinds of studies. And to see that technology is bringing students together and having people connect and be active, that, that's really good. And, and that shows that you know, it's, it's not technology's fault, it's just the designers of technology and how people adapt to it is, is, is uh, what we need to kind of study. It, it also reminds me of that, um, it's kind of one of those classic human factors principles, the yerkes dodson law, uh, which describes a kind of bell-shaped uh, relationship between pressure and performance. And I wonder if some of our time in the pandemic has caused, caused a shift to, to move towards the passive side. And a lot of the students are perceiving uh, negative impacts on that. And I think AI is doing a great job nudging forward uh, people, uh, various students across that curve to more of kind of more optimal kind of performance level. Uh, I think, uh, Barry, uh, you mentioned, uh, I think in the pre-show, doing some of the work uh, in your origin story on some kind of aviation kinds of things. Have you ever seen that York Stodson law pressure performance kind of relationships and some of the work that that you've been experiencing? Yeah, absolutely. It's sort of one of these things, isn't it, that um, it, it's almost so obvious that, um, the, that it just gets wrapped into everything you're doing and you need to be able to um, put things in a way that um, really reduces the amount of pressure on the on that cognitive load uh, more than anything else, and the ability to carry out them sort of tasks. So, yeah, I, I com I'm completely completely with that. You can see you can see how it plays out. So, Nick, from your perspective, what what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I have it I have it facetiously in in the show notes <laughs> and in other no duh news. The sky is blue. Um, look, I think. I think there's been a lot of advances in artificial intelligence lately that maybe may not be, uh, or or it might be actually. We'll get to this in just a minute, but it might not be as perceptible to the public as they realize. Um, you know, even simple things like like uh, little learning apps like Duolingo or um, you know any of these other little language learning or just trying to learn a new skill. Often, artificial intelligence is going on behind the scenes that will present. Uh, context-based knowledge to the user based on their previous responses. Uh, and I have a fun little anecdote about Duolingo that we can talk a little bit about later. But um, I do want to talk briefly about social thoughts. So if you are watching live, there's still time to answer our social thought. We are, uh, of course, talking about AI and learning this week. And so the, tonight's social thought is, have you encountered AI when trying to learn something new? If so, where was it? And was it, was it successful? Um, as of right now, we are at 100% yes. We don't have any responses yet as to where those things were successful and, and how was it successful. But 100% yes, which is a little surprising to me. Um, so we'll see how that changes throughout the show, if at all. Um, you know, I think we can kind of take a, a step back. Um, this is an interesting article, but I do want to kind of cover some ground here on uh, generic backgrounds, on learning and education, 
Frank, you and I covered this a little bit in the episode that you were on last. I think it was two one ninety seven or something like that. I'll get I'll get an exact number on that, uh, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about how artificial intelligence is feeding education, and then we'll come back to the article discussion. Um, Barry, do you want to talk a little bit about this uh, this article by Nancy Fenton? It's on Psych Learning Curve. Um, if I had it up in front of me and I had <laughs> lost it, then yes, I would. Here, um, I'll I'll yes. I'll uh I'll lay it out for you. So there's uh, an article here um, that we're going to use as supplemental material. Here, there's two articles that we're going to use as supplemental material. This one's uh, 20 psychological principles that um, are kind of uh, impact learning, right? And so it's broken down by a couple categories. I figure maybe we can go down this list and kind of talk about. Uh, just a couple that stand out to us uh, in the show notes. I've highlighted my picks, but uh, anything that stands out to either of you, uh, Barry, we'll start with you. Yeah, I think the I'm I'm quite like the the relates the, this story around feedback, and it is very much there around. Um, you've got to close that loop of um, student. You know, you teaching something to a student and then them them feeding it um, feeding it right back to you um, that they've understood it and um, actually thoroughly understand it and they're not just repeating back. And I guess this is where that AI piece comes in because it allows a lot more of of, of that done on a on a personal level. So yeah, I think that feedback for me is probably the um, I think that one one of the key things in there that that this sort of technology can deal can, uh, can uh, sorry can play with. How about you, Frank? Anything that stands out on that list to you? Yeah, what's, what's starting to ring a bell is the, the context, uh, the, the classroom conduct, and especially ex expectations and support. Uh, and it's one of those things being in, in, in more of this kind of online environment, I think has really changed uh, what, what the expectations and support are. Uh, where, you know, for, gosh, maybe hundreds of years we've had a, a certain way of doing things uh, that's been ingrained year after year you know, do this way sit in your seat uh, you know pay attention when you tell you to pay attention that kind of thing uh, and and now this whole uh, online environment has given a lot more uh, freedom for, from that kind of thing so I think there's a lot of adaptation and uh, calibration that's going on uh, with many different students and some students are doing well some students need uh, maybe technology assistance. Uh, to kind of kind of help help calibrate uh, some of that, and maybe some students are thriving. It's one of those things we talk about negative effects. Maybe for some things that are uh, some students that are not used to, or not suitable, uh, at least uh, in their in their mindset for kind of in classroom kind of experience, are doing quite well. Uh, so it'd be interesting to see any any kind of uh, unintended data that comes out from from all this uh, time here uh, separate. Yeah, this this list is interesting. So there's uh, this is kind of like an overview of learning, and it has a lot of um, a lot of various uh, attributes here, right? We're talking cognition, and I'm talking high level concepts here. There's 20 total. I'm not going to go over all of them. I think we've picked out some good ones already. But there's cognition and learning. There's motivation, social and emotional considerations, context and assessment. Frank, you brought up some great points about context. I want to talk briefly about the social component of this and assessment because um, Barry covered uh, cognition. We can get into motivation if we want, but I think the social considerations are interesting from a perspective where you are dealing with an artificial intelligence. Uh, that social component kind of goes out the window or does it? 
you're then interacting with a virtual agent in some in some regard, right? I mean, it is presenting you information that is more relevant to you. It might not necessarily be interacting with you like a human might, but there's still some sort of human robot teaming going or human AI teaming going on behind the scenes that is uh, going to need to be taken into consideration. I think that would fit under this category of social and emotional dimensions, um, at least in terms of you know, dealing with uh, virtual agents. Then you have the other uh, attribute of assessment. And this is, I think, where AI can really shine. Because if you have formative and summative assessments of uh, uh, some learners, um, I'm trying to make it fairly uh, ubiquitous here, some learners' ability, right? You have formative and summative assessments. Um, there's different approaches that are that can be taken for each of these. And I think AI can really provide uh, a useful input to these types of assessments because you might have, uh, you, you can evaluate effectiveness of some sort of intervention and then alter course and then evaluate that and then alter course again to give this personalized sort of uh, learning uh, curriculum for the learner. Uh, so I did want to touch on those. Uh, I'm going to do circle one more time. Barry, any of these other uh, attributes stand out to you that you want to talk about? Yeah, I, I actually want to push the um, the the assessment thing a bit further because I think this could be a um, a really big thing that not only can you sort of keep an eye on how things are going, but actually we we could really change the way we look at how we assess a lot of these courses because we we. We spend a lot of time obsessing over what grade did you get at the end. You know, largely we'll do either a piece of coursework at the end, or you'll do your you'll do your exams or whatever. And there's so much pressure on the exams, and actually, we can sort of see that the outputs that you get from the exams can be so skewed from what the actual skills of the person are. When fundamentally, what we're trying to do is to get um, a really good understanding of just how what are the skills and how capable is that person for either future and you know the next step of education or for or for employment. It's not just for the sake of having a certificate. It's, it's got to be something there. So if we've got these ways that, that can now assess almost on a continual basis and on, on a real small small scale, you can, you can actually judge when, whether a person is just off their game. And you, it could maybe highlight things like, is there some mental health issues? Are they potentially ill? Something like that. So, so a, a real care element on a short-term basis, but actually on a longer-term basis, you will get a much better idea of their, their capability and capacity um, in a way that is, um, I don't use the word infallible, that's probably a, a gone a bit far, but a much better thing, a uh, much better idea than what, what they were like just on one day in one exam room under one whatever pressure um, that, that in an unrealistic situation. So I think that for me would be an absolute um, real win. Um, but the, just the final one on the, on, on, on the backside of it is the, the social interaction side of thing worries me to a certain extent. Because already we treat, um, you know, the online and offline are two very different things. So even if you're texting somebody, messaging somebody, um, we think of it as you're talking to a computer, you're talking, and it, therefore it doesn't have the necessarily the same so social standing, social kudos as talking to a what we call a real person. So me talking face-to-face -to, -face to somebody in the street is very different to the way that we're talking now. Um, even though we know that we're real people, well, I believe you're real people, um, so I've been told. Um, but... I wonder whether we um, would then, 
you know, you've got, you've got the people sat there talking on the phones all the time, doing check, text chat on the phones. Would this not maybe exacerbate that problem and get us maybe thinking that um, that a lot more stuff is um, is online and therefore not real? So I think it, that's just a, a small flag. But actually, I find this story massively interesting um, for this. Yeah, Frank, I want to circle back to you. Is there any other attributes of, of learning and education that you want to highlight here before we move on to talking about specifically AI and education? I just wanted to, uh, to, to second kind of Barry's uh, assessment on some of the formative and summative things. Uh, the, uh, we think of a, you know, different kinds of users uh, in, in our human factors field to kind of not just the end user, but other kinds of maintainers and other kinds of things. So thinking about the teacher uh, as a type of user, being able to use AI to get a summary, say a dashboard summary of, of how different students are doing, uh, especially in an online environment. And if there's kind of a dip, like we talked about that performance curve, uh, to be able to use uh, uh, interventions, talking to the student, asking challenging questions. And so that way, it, it, and it does so in, in a very safe manner of kind of, okay, student X is, uh, you know, needs a little bit of a nudge. Okay, I'll, I'll set a, a question or call on that student. Uh, but also, I think with the, um, the interpersonal relationships, the making sure that there's quality interactions. And I think it was uh, Cal Newport, one of the authors that does stuff on digital minimalism, talks about the importance of quality interactions, the difference between clicking like on something versus picking up the phone and talking to a friend you haven't talked to in a while. I think, Nick, we do need to catch up. <laughs> yeah, we do. <laughs> so, so. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that's. Uh, I think uh, no, nothing more to add on that. It's a lot, a lot of great things, a lot of great uh, possibilities, and it's great to see uh, something that's going on that's helping students, uh, especially in these uh, different times. Yeah, so let's get into this other supplemental article that we have here. This is from Ouyang and, and Jiao, and I'm probably messing up uh, pronunciation there, so apologies to the authors. Um, but I do want to like start this with a little anecdote that kind of fits in well with that assessment piece that we were just talking about. And I mentioned this earlier. Um, so I've been re kind of kindling my uh, ability to speak multiple languages. You might not necessarily think of it looking at me, but I have many years of experience speaking Spanish and I've lost a lot of that ability over time. Um, and sort of one of the things that has rekindled my uh, desire to speak another language is because I've started teaching my son the language too. Now I'm not like a fluent speaker by any stretch of the imagination, but I know enough to get by. If I were in a foreign country, um, Mexico, Spain, I could probably get, you know, enough out that I could find the, you know, local market or I could, you know, find a hospital or I could, get on a plane or, you know, the, the essentials. Um, and I think that's really important to, to do that. Anyway, my, my little guy, he's young and I want to encourage that language development as he's young. And so we've started pulling out the Duolingo app. Uh, and one fun thing that I noticed, it's kind of serendipitous that we're talking about the story tonight, um, is that as you get something incorrect in that app, the system will understand that you've, need to more practice with that and they will loop that thing that you got wrong back into the practicing that you're doing and so you know if you if you made just a minor mistake it'll ask you the same question again but after other things it kind of just ropes it back into the curriculum without your knowledge that it's wasn't part of it to begin with it's just saying hey you got it's subtly 
having you practice it again just to make sure that you got it right. Uh, and there are other subtle nods in that program that are really interesting from a learning perspective that encourage you to uh, sort of revisit the context-based uh, questions and that you got incorrectly. Um, and I'll just leave it at there. I do want to get into this article on education um, and just a, a brief overview here. This one kind of breaks down um, sort of AI and education into three different paradigms. And you have AI directed, AI supported, and AI empowered. Maybe we can just break this down one by one and kind of talk about each of these. And then we'll talk about them all together. I don't know. Does that sound okay to you guys? Works for me. Yeah. Okay. Frank, why don't you go ahead and talk about paradigm one? It's at a high level. Okay. Yeah. So in paradigm one, the AI is used to represent uh, knowledge models and, and direct cognitive linking. Uh, so the, the AI will kind of represent uh, the domain knowledge. Uh, we talked in that previous article as you know, kind of a, a buddy that helps the children in the classroom uh, and directs the learning process. Uh, while the learner is a little bit more of a, in, in a passive mode, acting as a recipient of AI service and following the, the, the instructions and, and the process to follow these uh, specific learning pathways. Uh, and it looks like there's a paradigm too. Uh, Barry, you want to talk a little bit how the AI shifts during that, uh, during that phase? Yeah, so in paradigm two, the AI and the learner take on more collaboration, collaborative role with each other. So the AI is effectively relinquishing its control um, to support the learner as they um, as, as they go through the uh, through that learning process. Um, so at a really high level, that's it. It's, it's more of a um, a learning together um, type approach. Nick, do you want to take us into into paradigm three? Yes, I will. So in in the third one, this is interesting, right? So this is uh, actually empowering learning. Um, while they are, while the learners themselves are taking agency to learn, uh, and and that's a whole complicated sentence of a, a weird way of saying AI is just using a tool uh, is is used as a tool to augment human intelligence. Um, so it is it's almost less learning based in that third paradigm and more geared towards augmenting abilities uh, and and kind of keeping that intelligence at um, uh, easily referenceable is, is at least how I'm understanding it. Um, Frank, I see, is that, I, that might be you, I think. Who who wrote that next point there? I want to talk to whoever wrote that next point. Get their thoughts <laughs> that on was that. Frank. Uh, that's, uh, wasn't me. Yeah. <laughs> Frank, what, what, is this, what is this bullet point and what do you mean? Oh, so it was looking at uh, some of the human factors research out there. It talks about what they're called levels of automation. Uh, and there are a lot of many good researchers that talk about these different levels, which uh, especially for uh, informing uh, design, uh, try to set the level of automation based on the, the capabilities of the, the user at the time. Uh, so for certain levels, uh, the automation would do a lot more of the work uh, putting the humans maybe a little bit more of a, a supervisory level, uh, and then when it uh, it, it uh, when the humans want, if there's need for the for the user to do more of the task, uh, the the automation serves more of a checker, just to check to see making sure that the, the that the user stays on track with certain certain parameters. So it's really interesting to see that uh, taken to probably a whole 
many levels of complexity with when AI is concerned because they're actually uh, representing the models and doing some of the, the, the actual learning itself. Uh, but it's really, really great to see how the, those kind of uh, traditional frameworks of automation start to now see itself uh, in, in this kind of AI work. Yeah. Uh, Barry, any other closing thoughts on on this kind of other supplemental article on AI? And then we'll all kind of get back to the original article. Yeah, this is, um, I've sort of played with these domains before. I've sort of seen them as the, um, what, I, what I've read as the teacher learner mentor um, approach. So the the teacher is the AI you teaching you. The uh, the learner is you, you working together to learn on the on the journey, and the mentor bit is the you know the the the, um, the learner taking that that agency and the AI su supporting them. There was a really good um, book that I would recommend um, called Virtual Humans Today and Tomorrow by uh, David Burden, and this was all around what does the future of um, humans look like and he really goes into a lot of detail around the mentor bit specifically um and the main reason i know about it was because part of the project that they did was uh, they created a virtual barry uh, where they took all that uh, i create i was a and i in fact apparently still am um an online agent um uh, where they've taken all of my um thoughts experiences and things like that so but what they've done with that is turn it into a chatbot that can then support as a mentoring um, of individuals, so that that whole bit around AI empowering people, I just find absolutely fascinating, and it's really, really something to watch. Yeah, let's get back to the original article here. So, one kind of thing that I want to make sure we talk about that I thought was really interesting is that they're kind of using AI, at least in the context of this article, for uh, physical hands-on activities, and they're using this tool called Norilla. Um, or uh, which is a mixed reality learning platform, um, basically allowing children to interpret real world experiments, uh, and they and they get this feedback. And it's it's an earthquake table, um, ramps or other physical apparatuses uh, with AI turned on and off. Um, and and the idea behind this article is that you know as the AI is on, uh, just to remind everybody, they are more successful at learning. Um, so I do want to talk about that. Frank, do you have any thoughts about using this platform um, now after we've kind of visited all the other uh, supplemental material here? Yeah, and it's, and it's one of those things where uh, I think where some of the uh, individual differences can start putting it to play. Uh, and so I think, you know, when there's using, being able to turn AI off or have different modes of AI, where students can learn. Uh, and this is kind of especially helpful in, in the classroom where you may have uh, students with different abilities, different uh, learning styles, different kind of just baseline abilities. And it's one of those things where uh, teachers, could, I could imagine, can kind of struggle making sure that keeping pace with everything. So using the AI to help boost and, and, and challenge the students uh, would be something that would be uh, pretty, pretty neat to see in, in classrooms. Barry, any other thoughts on on this article? Yeah, I think this is this is highlighted the fact that a there's loads of staffing pressures going on in in schools and um, educational facilities at the moment, and this is a fantastic way of being able to relieve some of that pressure to be able to get some more uh, directed education towards each individual student based on their own capability and being able to push them to their own limit 
much more often. So you'd almost, if, if it's implemented right, you've got the ability to keep that student constantly engaged and motivated. And a motive, somebody who's motivated to learn will learn way more and be be more successful rather than just being droned out from the um, from the, the front of the classroom. But fundamentally, I think this also highlights the, that I think um, you know the tra- traditional educational model is broken. This took, this article talks a lot about active learning and things that you need a lot more resources to do than just stand at the front of a classroom and lecture. Um, if we want to have quality learning, it isn't about how long you spend in this in an establishment. It's the quality of learning that you get out of it during, you know. And in fact, if we can get people to learn more in a shorter period of time, it makes it way more effective. So I think in, for me, this shows how technology can have a um, a huge impact and could probably revolutionise what we do. But also, we need to take it as a wake up call um, about how we um, are actually teaching people. Um, and getting the most value out of that, te- that, that our teaching practices. You know, you left it on a semi-hopeful note, and I'm going to use that as a springboard to leave it uh, on, a, on a somber note. Um, it, it's often fun for us to sit here and talk about these types of things on a platform. We are, uh, I guess, uh, fortunate enough to have the technology to stream a podcast across the internet to many people. Um, but, you know, I think this really does highlight the importance of equity of, uh, of technology and, and um, you know, to, to be able to have this sort of equipment in every classroom and not just uh, the classrooms in the good zip codes or postal codes, uh, but to have this in every classroom and have it be a, a, uh, a learning experience that everyone gets access to, I think is a really important thing. Uh, And so I'll just leave it with that. (laughs) Anyway, we're going to take a quick break on that note, and then we'll be right back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener-supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. If you normally skip over the Patreon section, don't this time because I there's something else here. So a huge thank you, as always, to our patrons. Uh, we did pick up two new patrons this month, so we're always happy to have you. Uh, and we especially want to thank our honorary Human Factors cast staff, uh, Michelle Tripp, patrons like you keep the show running. Um, while we're on the topic of Patreon, I'm going to go off a little bit off script here from our normal Patreon begging uh, to cover this because it's it's such a nice letter from one of our new patrons and I, I wanted to read it on the show. Uh, they write, Hi, I've been listening to your podcast for months and I really want to tell you that the show has helped me a lot. I work for a Taiwanese computer manufacturing company as a human factors engineer. It can be frustrating sometimes to be a minority in a design team where most of my coworkers are not quite familiar with human factors and ergonomics, uh, except anthropometry 
they need those data to support their design. I was struggling on how to introduce human factors and ergonomics knowledge to my coworkers without making our conversation boring or too hard for a casual chat. And then I found this show. Not only did I gain knowledge from the show, but I also found opportunities to share human factors and ergonomic studies in a less stressful and more interesting way. Thank you for making this wonderful podcast. English is not my first language. Please accept my apologies if there's any grammar error. Best. I'm leaving them anonymous because I didn't ask them if I could use their name. We just got this in today, but I did want to read it. Um, we always love hearing stories like this. Uh, I think, you know, one of my goals with this podcast is always to make human factors accessible um, and fun. And so thank you. Uh, love hearing that <laughs> from you guys. Um, speaking of patrons, we're two away from being self-sustainable and not incur any out-of-pocket costs. So you know, we pay for the show ourselves. That's going to pay for things like our hosting fees, our website domain, and our website capability. So anyway, if, if you're, that's something you want to do, it's out there. Uh, we're <laughs> Why don't we go ahead and get into this next part of the show we like to call... It came from... It came from... Yes, it came from this week. It is all Reddit. Uh, this is the part of the show where we search over the internet to bring you topics the community's talking about. If you find these answers useful, give us a like wherever you're at to help other people find this content. We have three tonight, uh, and we're going to get into them. So the way this is going to work, I'm going to read it. I'm going to pass it to Barry or Frank. Be on your toes, guys. And then uh, we'll pass it to somebody else. So everyone has to be on their toes tonight since it's a three-headed game. Uh, this first one here is, what exactly are human factors skills? This is by... IDK witty username uh, from the human factors subreddit <laughs> goes to show. I don't read these new usernames before I say them uh, as the title says, when you're applying for human factors jobs, what are the skill sets that you guys have or want to have that employers are looking for? I've been told that human factors is a good industry route following completion of my PhD. And uh, I'm going to skip all that, but looking at job postings, it seems a little unclear to me. Uh, that's an attainable route. Uh, there seems to be a lot of UX design, which I have little experience, uh, although I think there are certain transferable skills and rules, but curious to know what people think, like statistics, coding, uh, perusing this sub a little bit, it appears that uh, there's a few different sides of human factors. Some uh, sound more attainable than others. Happy to talk about in any other way, just trying to pick people's brains. All right, who's it going to be? Frank, what do you think? What exactly are human factors skills i think the i think the first one is empathy uh i know it's something that you don't study uh but to understand the users being able to uh fundamentally understand what are they going through task wise performance wise and that helps with your intuition to be able to see what is the, the root problem because a lot of times uh in human factors there are a lot of confounding problems both technological, organizational, human interaction with technology that are in there. And so to be able to kind of pick through that uh, to, to, to help identify the problem will put any kind of human factors practitioner at a good uh, starting point. Uh, so that would be my, my number one draft pick. I think we were talking sports at the pre-show on, on uh, human factor skills. It's empathy. All right. Who are you going to pass it to, Frank? Uh, yeah, let's go. Let's go, Barry. Let's see what uh, what is the the code number one pick? I guess. <laughs> oh, I, can can I bring out the word? It depends. Is is that allowed? Yeah, it's. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean fundamentally, it's it's the 
what I, and it's one of the reasons I love working in the HF world is that the range of things we can get involved with is so broad, you know, from the physical to the cognitive to the organizational, HCI design, UX design, if you're down with the cool kids, um, all, all the way down to, you know, physical hand, you know, physical design of an, of, of an object. And, and it really depends what you want to get into. Um, but what I, the, the big thing I like about it is that there is always an excuse for us to get involved. Um, every project involves people one way or another, even in things like um, autonomous systems and things like that. There's always a user in the loop somewhere. Um, so we have a really good excuse to go and get involved in anything do, and do everything. I think for me that there's there is a lot of like hard skills in in terms of what you get what you get, but fundamentally I think you need to be inquisitive. You need to be um, willing to um, put forward an argument in a room where you might not be popular, um, and you've got to be willing to stand your ground because you're going to get into a lot of discussions, a lot of uh, places where you might be the one lone HF person in the room, um, but you're right. And you need to tell everybody you're right because your end user will thank you for it. Yeah. Uh, so you took empathy. You took uh, sort of the it depends route. I'm going to go with the word flexibility. Um, and I'm going to use this as an opportunity to bring up the full saying of jack of all trades uh, because no one knows the full saying or at least they always misquote it. A jack of all trades is a master of none, but oftentimes better than a master of one. And I think this is really important when it comes to human factors. I think being flexible is one of the biggest strengths that we have in this field. Um, I was going to go on a tangent about how I always pick in MMOs or video games the class that kind of uh, is best suited for most situations, but is not really... Uh, hyper-focused in one. I'm not going to go that route. I said it. But um, I think, you know, we may be facing like a, a project management role in one context or a user research role in another context or a designer role even in another context. And I think that flexibility to work within your constraints and ultimately put your best foot forward to ensure that you have the empathy for the user uh, you know, is out there and and that you are putting your best foot forward with the design and uh, making sure that whatever product you put out there is going to ultimately serve its use case best for the people who are using it. I think that's ultimately what the, to me, what human factor skills are. Okay, that was a long-winded answer. Let's get on to this next question here. Um how do you conduct and analyze research in relation to a product feature? This is by Mouth Talk on the user experience subreddit. We're going to go Frank again. You thought I was going to switch it up. <laughs> <laughs> rock, paper, rock. <laughs> Analyzing research in uh, relation to product feature. Let's oh, see. I didn't read the thing. Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> That's, that's my bad. Uh, wow, I've been doing this for how many years? Uh, this is the, they write, hey, everyone, some background on my question. That would help, right? Uh, I work in-house on one product used by large companies, and my research slash UX process typically consists of working on one page, flow, or process, or feature within the product. I was wondering how the process of research and design typically goes for others in this situation. Lots of materials and advice out there seem to cover end-to-end -end design, uh, or of a full product, do you find that you'll go through the full process for each 
project, or skip parts? What does your research typically focus on? What methods do you use the most? Curious to see everyone's answers. All right, Frank, we're going with you now that I've given up the full context of this question. <laughs> How do you conduct and analyze research that is for a specific product feature rather than the whole product? Yeah, so, so I think a lot of the reasoning of, of why uh, uh, one would do research for a certain product feature, it, it just depends on where the product is in its life cycle. Uh, so a lot of times it's easy to assume that, hey, we're designing a system from scratch and we get to do the whole holistic method or we have time to do our discovery. But sometimes, uh, especially in larger companies and, and depending on what, what project that you're on, you have uh, uh, maybe a more mature product and it's a, a, a little feature that helps enhance that, that, that product, let's say an incremental feature. Uh, so being able to kind of understand where you're at with the life cycle will help uh, the path in, uh, in conducting the research. Uh, the, and, and once you, especially for a, a specific product, you want to uh, kind of follow more, more standards-based kinds of things versus research because there's things that are maybe already built or established rules uh, and best practices for that. Uh, and then being able to uh, use those findings to help, help towards the, the bigger, bigger research effort. So it's a lot of the scoping effort uh, and, and, and once you, you apply the scoping and the constraints, say like filters on a, on a spreadsheet of processes and tools, you can kind of find the ones that, that work best for you in your, in, in your tool, toolkit. Um, Nick, any, any, uh, what, what are your thoughts on, on this, uh, product feature? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, um, for me, when I'm approaching just a product feature, uh, I'm going to say it, it depends, but I think largely what I'll do is kind of understand the context of that feature in the larger uh, either workflow or product that it belongs to. Um, I think understanding that context really helps with sort of um, outlining exactly what you need to do to research that thing, right? Do you need to do uh, a deeper analysis because this is a standalone product or, you know, you know, it is a product feature in this case. So I guess it would be what exactly do I need to research? Frank, you mentioned, you know, you you there might be things that are already established for a product, certain design uh, standards, uh, design guidance that exists already that you don't have to think so hard about about this specific feature. So, you know, I'd focus more on things like workflow um, or how they get to that product, the entry points and exit points from that product feature uh, from other parts of the product as a whole. Um, that's kind of my short answer, Barry, I'm going to pass it over to you. What do you think? How do you tackle I'll, this problem? Yeah, I'll take that. I mean, alongside the stuff that, um, that you've both said, I, I sort of go by, I, I take a lot from agile in, uh, agile approaches in this, that I, I tend to have a mantra of scope, size, and maturity, which means that scoping it, what is the scope of what you're talking about? Is, is what, what you're getting manageable? It, does it and give itself to a good, um, user story in of its own right, or is it more of an epic? um so an epic a, a number of use cases put pulled together so have you got things down can you derive it down to either a use case or a set of use cases what is the size of of the overall um piece is it is it very large small are you talking about the um an entire product or are you talking about an, a small element of it and that really allows me to sort of determine what sort of products i want uh, what sort of methods and tools i want to bring into play 
Then the final thing is maturity. Is it something I just need to tweak? Is it something that's got a lot of work in and I just need to push it slightly forward in, in a new way? Or is it broken and I get the joy of ripping it to shreds and starting again? Um, so I, I guess mine is is really influenced by the fact I tend to do a lot of, I guess, firefighting um, rather than starting many products from scratch. And so I tend to go in and, and have a fairly almost strict analysis way of going through and being able to look at my scope size maturity and then be able to apply what I want to do. I've, I've found just through hard experience being able to do that saves me so much time at the far end because I can set expectation and I can set my own expectation as well as well as the clients. Good answer. Uh, speaking of basically uh, research side of things, let's talk about turning that research into design. And then uh, specifically, this next question here, advice on making designs that are easier for developers to follow. This is went wrong at prom. Uh, from the user experience subreddit. Uh, don't even know what it, don't even want to know what that means. Um, current student, relatively new to UX and UI. I've been working with a small team of developers on a startup. Want to make their life easier by translating my designs to an actual product. I've been using an eight point grid so far, but I'm not sure what else I can do to streamline the process. Does anyone have advice on optimizing dev handoff? Uh, things I should avoid doing in my designs, tools that may help. Thank you. All right. We went with Frank for the first two. Who are we going to go with for the last one? It's going to be Barry. Oh, nobody saw that one coming, did they? Um, the, I guess the first thing I would, I would sort of say from my perspective is don't hand it off. Um, if you can try and get, try and get part of the team work, work with the devs alongside them, because if you can, uh, the best teams I've ever worked with is when you can get the whole team together where you've got the dev and you, uh, the devs and yourselves working as part of that same. Again, I guess I'm leaning towards Agile in a certain way, but this existed way before Agile did, I guess, it, uh, really. Um, so I tend to use things. So Figma is a great thing where you can actually, you know, you do designs, but you can actually demonstrate them designs. So show the devs what it is that you're really wanting to achieve, not just the actual graphics, but use that presentation mode, which is really powerful to be able to flow and show them what your intent is, not just the actual hard design, but what is it you're trying to achieve. Um, basic things, style guides and things like that. Get a lot of the basic stuff um, done and out the way. Use that. Um, sometimes you think for a small project, do it, developing a style guide and things can be a real pain. You just want to get on and do do the good juicy stuff, but it actually saves you time, I, th I think, in the, in the long term. Um, but fundamentally, no matter what you do, get everybody in the same room and, and communicate. Um, don't I, I worry when I see the com, um, comments like "I want to hand it off" or like a, like a, like that hot football, hot potato. Um, actually, get you know, bring them in closer. Um, give them a nice hug. Tell them what you want. Anybody else do that, or is it just me? Oh, I love that, Frank. I'm going to punt to you. What What do you do in this situation? Yeah, I, I kind of have a similar similar approach to Barry, having conversations, uh, and that's probably one of the, also the agile kind of uh, best practices or principles, is that the having a conversation allows you to understand what the developer needs. So if you treat the developer as 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 another user or an internal customer, you'll get their user needs, you'll get their pain points, you'll get feedback on the way you're doing things, and. Uh, and it's best to not, not just a Slack chat or an email. It's the, the pick up the phone. We've talked about deep levels of communications or I guess Slack call, huddle, Teams call, whatever, you know, whatever, whatever you have to get the other person on the line and hearing their voice. Uh, because you can pick up a lot of the social cues on how things are going 
fine doesn't always mean fine and good doesn't always mean good. Uh, and so to get that kind of feedback and, and, and tailor your processes and tools, there's a lot of tools out there that you can pick from, uh, but it's a, like, you know, a lot of the themes are said a lot of these other things. It's the soft skills and, and using those tools and getting that art of finding what tools to use that, that will uh, help set, set someone for success. Uh, Nick, you have any additional thoughts on, on this one here? Yeah, the only thing I want to add to this is, okay, I, I understand it's best to uh, include them in the process. I completely agree. That's how I operate, too. However, I'm going to approach this in the handoff, uh, in the handoff direction. So I think the, the one thing you want to consider here, if you are handing off, again, best practice is to not do that. But um, do it in a way where you provide as much information and context as possible. Um, make a very thick document that would encourage them to sit down and meet with you next time because they don't want to sit down and read through this whole thing. Uh, but also, you know, make this a standalone product. Make it, hey, users were saying X, Y, and Z, back it with user data, and um, say that, you know, this is a required feature or uh, component that you need in order to satisfy user needs. Um, so bring in the actual data and then as you're talking about designs itself, so you've given them the context with the data, when you're presenting the designs itself, make sure you list out every single interaction as it should be. And, you know, if you can, down to the specifications of like transitions on, on uh, you know, if you're talking about strict interaction design, what, you know, the cursor speed and all these other things, the very specific, um, attributes of your design, the color codes, everything. That way you are eliminating possibilities that they mistake what you have given them as some sort of rough approximation. And they now will take that as the ground truth. Uh, and that's my best advice if you do hand it over. Again, best practice is to kind of go with the, hey, come over here. I'm going to give you a hug. We're going to take a look at this. You're going to ask me any question you need to. Uh, because we are best buds. All right. Uh, that is all uh, for the it came from section. We're going to get into this last part of the show. Needs no introduction. It's one more thing. Um, this is where we talk about just one more thing. Barry, what's going on with you? Um, I'm going to take my one more thing and split it in half. So it might look like two more things, but it's not. It's just two halves of the same thing. Um, <laughs> so in a couple of weeks i on the 3rd of november i'm chairing a charity institute of ergonomics and human factors webinar with mark sajan paul salmon and rachel pool talking about using artificial intelligence in healthcare so we'll be publishing that um all the details for that fairly soon but if you're interested in in learning more about that there's just been a, a white paper published and it's really actually from a geek perspective like me really interesting so i'm really um really sure to be asked to chair that but my true one more thing is I've just had to buy a new washing machine. And a washing machine for me just you know, washes clothes, and that's brilliant. Does it read? But it's, got, it's Bluetooth enabled, as in I've got, now got an app for the washing machine. Do I need an app for the washing machine? And I've got the same for the dishwasher. And, in fact, somewhat now the, the, the um, clothes dryer doesn't have a, um, an app. I, I almost feel like that's, that's a bit left out. I kind of think we're going all over the top with the, uh, with the level of apps that are required. Can I ask what the app does? Like, is it just a, a interface? Like, is there no interface on the physical device, or is it? Is it all no, no. There's, what does it do? there's 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 the usual interface. There's the usual controls on the front of the washing machine, um, but this apparently will allow allow me to check where it is in its cycle, 
which I'll know because if it's stopped, I know it's finished. If it's if it's still going and making noises, it's still going. Um, apparently, this one will we might allow me to set it off remotely. So, which in theory sounds sounds good. I can sort of see that. However, I have to go to the physical machine, turn it into remote mode. So I have to fill it. We say you know you got to put your clothes in and your detergent and all that sort of stuff. Then set it in remote mode. Go to another part of my house wherever um and then access the app on my phone it's got to be within bluetooth um range and then set it going on its remote cycle when actually if i'd loaded it i could have just pressed go before i left instead of putting it into remote mode i'd have just put it into a normal <laughs> mode so yeah i i like this idea i, I love geek i, I uh, complete gadget geek and i think everything like that is amazing but i just can't help thinking um i don't think my washing machine needs its own app like, look, I get the use case for a dryer, right? You're sitting in bed and you still have a load in there from last time and you, you know, you want warm socks or whatever and you just hit it while you're on your phone. And that to me makes sense, but a washing machine, weird. Uh, Frank, what's your one more thing this week? Yeah, it was actually, uh, involves a trip to Costco. And so I got these new earbuds and I was just kind of trying them out, uh, and just kind of walking along the aisle. And, and, and usually when I go to Costco or any kind of grocery store with a common layout, I'm just kind of in my own world, just kind of just, you know, just on autopilot. But they changed the snack section. I, I get these like mixed nuts or beef jerky at this Costco because the holiday season is coming. And so the snack section is usually right before the registers at the Costco where I shop at. Uh, but then I, I just didn't know what to do. There goes my mental model, as I said. But I was actually listening in these earbuds to a previous version of this uh, episode of the podcast on mental models and cognitive models. Uh, I think that you two have gone. So that, it was kind of a, 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 whoa, okay, calm down. <laughs> my, my mental model has changed. I'll listen to the podcast and and, and kind of get, get some tips and tricks on what to do. So it was really uh, more of a coincidence and kind of a, a funny thing since it happened recently and, and now we're here to talk about it. So that was a, a cute coincidence there. That's that's funny that you were listening to the mental model one when that happened. Um, my one more thing is is uh, I guess uh, let's see here. So I had are you are you familiar that the Pixel Six uh, event was earlier this week? I think it was on Tuesday. Yeah, I heard about that. Y'all y'all gadget geeks. So. Um, Here's here's my experience. I've wanted this phone since they announced it back earlier this year um, because it's time for an upgrade. And uh, mine's from 2017, which isn't that long ago, but it's long enough. Uh, and it's only got 64 gigabytes of storage on it. And I need I desperately need more for the type of things that I'm doing now, um, like, you know, podcasting and storing media on my actual phone. Um, anyway, so here's, let me describe to you the launch experience of the Pixel 6 Pro. So you sit down, you watch an hour-long video on YouTube uh, by Google about the phone. You get super hyped, super excited about the new product. And then you spend two more hours on Google's broken store trying to order this product, getting frustrated because it is uh, bouncing stock around um, because the store is broken. It couldn't accurately identify to me what things were in stock. So I wanted the 512 gigabyte black version because that is just, it's it's the only version that has the 512 gigabytes and I want a lot of storage. Um, but then I also wanted it in this package called the Pixel Pro Pass, which includes things like 
their Game Pass and YouTube Premium and the the cloud storage, which all of those things I use. Well, maybe not the games yet, but maybe I will. Uh, anyway, it's it's a package that saves you money over the long term. So I, I was trying to get all this stuff together, and um, it was an awful experience. Uh, but I'm super happy. I stuck with it. I stuck with it. Um, and you know, one hit on my credit report later because I have to get it through Google's financing. Uh, <laughs> accounts anyway i got it and it'll be here next month and i'll report back on that but i'm i'm very thankful that i was able to stick through it for three hours trying to get that phone on a tuesday um anyway yeah that's it i got more fun exciting things to talk about next week for one more thing but before we get out of here i just want to say well we got a couple more votes in it's still 100 yes for learning with uh with ai which is interesting to me not a single person said no as of this recording 527 p.m. on a Thursday evening Pacific. All right. Well, that's going to be it for today, everyone. If you like this episode, we invite you to check out episode 196. I've been quoting it wrong this entire time, where Frank and I talk about how Google is improving virtual classrooms and comment wherever you're listening on what you think of the story this week. For more in-depth discussion, you can always join us on our Slack or Discord communities. Visit our official website. Sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, there's a couple things you can do. One, leave us a five-star review. That's completely free for you to do. You can do that right now in whatever podcast app you're in. Two, tell your friends about us. Word of mouth really helps the show grow. And three, you can always support, uh, consider supporting us on Patreon. Again, we are two away from being self-sustainable, everyone. <laughs> Let's get there. And as always, links to all of our social and our website are in the description of this episode. I want to thank Mr. Barry Kirby for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about artificial intelligence? On Twitter, you can find me at Baz underscore K, or you can search for 1202 The Human Factors Podcast, where I'm at my new shiny website, www.1202podcast.com. And Mr. Frank Laxon, where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about education and learning? Hello, the best place to find me is on LinkedIn. Uh, F. Laxon uh, is my is, uh, my screen name there. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me streaming on Twitch every Monday for office hours across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it depends. It depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense. <laughs>